Hello, comrades, and welcome to the podcast you are currently listening to. I promise, this isn't a Russian invasion, just a temporary occupation. I'm Roberto, one of the hosts of the podcast, Czar Power. And I'm Brendan, the other half of the podcast. Together, we're ranking the Russian rulers from Rurik to Putin. They will compete based on how well they fought, how successful they were in life, how much kompromat, or blackmail, they had on them, how handsome they were, and how long they ruled for. After being scored, we decide whether they get to party it out in the Kremlin or get sent straight to the Gulag. Those who make it to the Kremlin will need to duke it out for the position of best Russian ruler. You can find us on any podcast host as Tsar Power, on Twitter at Tsar Power Pod, and on Facebook as Tsar Power. That's Tsar spelled T-S-A-R. Now, back to your regularly scheduled podcast. And if you hear a knock on your door, beware. The KGB is coming to make your stay a bit more permanent. Good day and welcome to the history of Aotearoa, New Zealand. Episode 103, not 4 like I originally recorded this. Tane and the boys. This podcast is supported by our amazing patrons. If you want to support Hans, go to patreon.com slash history Aotearoa. Welcome to 2023! Last year, we covered the history of the iconic southern beer brand, Spates, as well as a lot of the history of alcohol and prohibition in New Zealand. Before that, we covered what Māori were doing for fun, and dived a bit more into what the haka is. This year, we will begin the home stretch of our last three topics on the pre-European period starting with something that we have touched on numerous times throughout our discussions so far, particularly in the dramatic retellings of Māori stories. We're going to be discussing Māori religion. This is a fairly vague description, and we'll talk about why that is, but generally this will encompass things like the Māori pantheon, what they believed happened to the wairua, soul, when someone died, as well as some of the, what you might call, mythological creatures. Things like the Māori version of elves, fairies, and giants. Before we really get into the meat of it though, there is a couple of warnings or disclaimers that we should go over. The first is that right at the start of this podcast, way back in episode zero, I mentioned that Hans is going to take a scientific approach to the history. Everyone is entitled to their religious beliefs, whatever those may be. But we don't have undeniable scientific proof that the Christian god, or Tane Mahuta, exists. Therefore, going forward I will be using language to reflect that. This is not to discredit those who do believe in these beings, I, in fact, also have my own religious beliefs. But we need to take a neutral stance here. Māori did, and do, believe Tāne Mahuta to be real. I am not trying to prove he is or isn't. 
I only wish to talk about those beliefs, because those beliefs certainly do exist. So if you are somewhat offended by the fact that I'll be saying things like, people believed this, or they thought that happened, please know that it is because I am trying to tell you about what Māori believed to be true. I am not trying to invalidate anyone's beliefs. I know most of you will understand this, but I thought it would be best to just say it up front as well. It is also important to remember that, even though a lot of these gods, concepts or stories come to us from oral sources and had been passed down through the generations orally due to a lack of written language, that doesn't mean they aren't any less reliable. Edward Shortland proved this when he managed to get the specific genealogies for a couple of important Tainui Rangatira. They told him of 18 generations leading back to the Great Fleet. As such, after doing some rough maths, he deduced that Māori must have arrived in Aotearoa approximately 500 years before him. Taking into account that Shortland was writing in the mid-19th century, he was saying that the Great Fleet landed on Maui's fish sometime around the 14th century. Through archaeological evidence, we know the scientific answer is a little bit further back than that in the mid to late 13th century. But he was pretty close. Shortland even tested this hypothesis by going to some Tiarua rangatira and doing the same experiment. He got the same result, with everyone pretty much agreed on the number of generations. The other thing we need to talk about is around tapu. Throughout the course of this research, reading books written by Europeans like Alston Best and Edward Shortland, there was a concerning prevailing theme. There are things in Te Ao Māori that, for various reasons, were not meant for the ears of outsiders. And, in fact, there were many ideas, concepts, or rituals that were only meant for a very select elite within Māori society. This elite were the members of the Whareiwānanga, the closest thing that Māori had to a combined university and organised priesthood. Even then, some of these ideas were limited to the elite of the elite. As such, most of the average people that were weaving, fishing, playing games, and just generally living life, were not the sort of people privy to that information, since to share it would be to break tapu, and consequently risk the retribution of the gods. However, some of the people who had this higher level of education converted to Christianity, and as such, lost this fear of godly retribution. So, these new converts felt it was mostly okay to share the once-secret information with outsiders, given it didn't matter as much now. By and large, Māori that converted to Christianity believed that the pantheon of their ancestors still existed, just that they posed no threat to Jesus and his daddy. However, a lot of these converts would later feel a sense of whakamā, shame, after talking to Best or Shortland. Although the supernatural pressures were not there anymore, the cultural ones certainly were. They felt that they would be ostracised by Māori society, especially those who had not converted, 
which was a huge thing given the heavy emphasis Māori culture placed on family and community involvement. Additionally, they felt they had failed or angered their ancestors, another big pillar of their culture. So what does this mean for us? Why am I even talking about it? Well, in short, a lot of the information I'm about to give you in the following episodes was not meant for a general audience. It wasn't even meant for a general Māori audience. This was their most sacred knowledge. This was effectively being allowed into the Holy of Holies, or knowing the true name of God. Whatever you want to compare it to, this was the ultimate knowledge Māori had of the nature of the universe. Knowledge that only those inducted into the Whareiwananga were allowed to know. Additionally, the people who did give us this information didn't feel super good about releasing it after the fact. They felt they had done something wrong and were ashamed. I know there are many people out there who may feel uncomfortable with listening to or knowing information that was culturally not meant for them. So I thought it would be best to be upfront about it so that you may make your own decision. If you wish to skip the following episodes about Māori religion to protect your own spiritual or mental health, by all means, please do so. The episodes are 104 to 111. This may also bring up the question of why am I going to share this information with you at all? Shouldn't I just leave it be and not release it for wider consumption? This is a fair question, and one that I have grappled with a lot during my research. Ultimately, I have decided that I will go ahead and share what I know, since this information is already out there in the world, and is actually pretty easy to access. You can do exactly what I did. Go to your local library, and as long as you kind of know what you're looking for, it isn't hard to find all of this. In fact, the largest barrier you will find is that some of it is actually really poorly written, but that's neither here nor there. So me putting this on the internet isn't revealing some revolutionary new stuff that has been under lock and key for hundreds of years. It's all out there if you want to find it. But again, I want to be upfront and give you all the facts of what I have found, so that you can come to your own conclusion about whether you wish to continue listening. And if the answer is no, that's okay. I'll see you in the next episodes. For everyone else, now that I've gone through all that, I do have one more disclaimer if you'll bear with me. The following episodes are going to be very very confusing. You're going to hear me say, depends on who you ask, quite often, or rather more often than I normally do, and there is some fairly high-level abstract ideas. Remember, a lot of this stuff was for the learned elite. I am essentially trying to explain to you Māori physics. So, if you don't understand it at the first pass, don't worry too much. So, Religion. As I said at the top of the episode, religion is actually a somewhat vague title. I mean, how would you define religion? Most people would probably put deities within that definition, and probably things like rituals, sacraments, prophets, and demigods. 
But would you include things like myths or folklore? Stuff like elves, giants, fairies, ghosts, and tanifa. I should stress here that I use the words myth and folklore as their dictionary definition, which does not include the extra bit that people ascribe to it, which is that myths or folklore are fake. When I say these words, I am not saying fake, false, or does not exist. All religions have myth. Even Christianity has mythology. Angels, demons, Genesis, Noah, and so on are all part of the Christian mythology. And what are saints, if not the European version of Maui? Even Best takes a few shots at the religion of his homeland. Quote, All races of man have conceived some form of myth in order to account for the existence of our species and the earth we dwell on. Hence, the Māori has his allegorical myths pertaining to these weighty matters. These may be deemed puerile, but then most cosmogonic systems may be termed so, and even that of the scriptures seems to have been but poorly arranged, inasmuch as it appears to bring light and vegetation into the world before the sun. End quote. So, what I'm really driving at here is that for Māori, Religion and myth were one and the same. You cannot separate the two. So to really understand Māori religion, we also need to dive into their myths and legends. To that end, Edward Shortland puts Māori religion into three broad categories. The first is relating to the origins of the world and humans. These were the core beliefs that were held extremely sacred, and he says that these were the beliefs that Māori held on to the most, even after Christianity came to Aotearoa and tried to stamp them out. Additionally, it was this area that Tohunga were apprehensive to tell anyone outside of those who were properly initiated. The second was the stories around heroes, demigods and the like. So this was everything around people like Maui, Kupe, or Tūpuna that were so far removed from the present day that they had moved more into legend or fable. Again, not false, but their stories were probably embellished more due to the difference in time since the events occurred. The third category is stories around the Great Fleet, the one that brought Māori to Aotearoa, as well as anything before that during their time in Hawaiki. This is all stuff like the different waka, who was on them, where they landed, what happened after, and so on. Now, we could follow this format, but I think it makes it a bit difficult to understand how all of this relates to each other, especially the more material aspects like rituals. Instead, I thought it might be better to go for a narrative approach, or at least as best of a narrative as we can make, given a lot of the details change depending on who you ask. Which naturally means we need to start with how everything came to be. And it should really be said that the Māori creation story is an amazing blend of concepts, such as cosmogony, the origins of the cosmos, anthropogeny, the origins of humans, and theogony, the origins of the gods. All of this comes together to make a relatively cohesive whole that really lays a solid foundation for why everything is the way it is. So, let's take a look at what happened in the beginning. 
most of you are probably familiar with the story of the separation of Ranganui, the Sky Father, and Papatuanuku, the Earth Mother. We covered it in one of our early episodes. However, what you probably don't know is what was going on before the two parents were locked in their embrace, or what was happening before they were even born. What exists before existence itself? Nothing. Well, there was something, but that something was nothing. Let me explain. Māori believed in something called te pō, which more or less means the unknown. The term had a few different uses, as it could mean anything that was beyond the normal standard of human comprehension. Times or places that were intangible or unseen. This could be things like the spirit realm, the underworld, inside the black hole in the film Interstellar, or the time before creation. Poor also means night, which refers both to a literal darkness in the time before Tamanui Tara, the sun, and also a metaphorical one in that we don't really know what was before, and if we did, we probably wouldn't be able to comprehend it anyway. Additionally, asking someone about an event that happened in the past may result in a reply, I don't know, I was in the poor, meaning that they weren't even born yet. Te poor, the one before creation, was actually in 10 different stages, or 12 depending on who you ask. Collectively, they are all known as te pō, but slightly confusingly, one of those stages is also called te pō. These developmental stages of the universe are often recited in a way as if they were tipuna of the sky and earth. That one state of being was preceded and succeeded by another state, in the same way that a child succeeds their parents. Sometimes these are shown in reference to the growing of a tree, and sometimes they are shown as a singular being that can reproduce asexually. However, the latter is likely from Europeans who didn't hear the whole story from Tonga. The way of telling the story as one of genealogy is likely a literary aid rather than an actual account of what they thought happened, as most Māori would be familiar with how whakapapa was structured, and as such, putting it in that format would make it easier to understand. Again, depending on who you ask, the order of these stages changes, but what we can do is split the stages into three broad categories. Te pō, darkness or night, te ao, light or day, and te kore, nothingness or the void. Within these three are the full 10 or 12 stages that end with the birth slash creation of rangi and papa. Well, unless you're talking to someone else who sees things differently and splits these primordial periods into two different groups. Six before papa was born and six after. So in this scenario, Papa wasn't born at the end of Te Pō, but about halfway through. The first six stages are usually qualified with an adjective that means long, great, or dark, essentially emphasising how a whole lot of nothing was going on. The second six stages were potentially when Papa was giving birth to her children, the Atua, 
gods, like Tane Mahuta, Tu Matolinga, and all those guys. It is also around this period that Papa likely married Rangi, who was possibly born between a union of two personifications of natural processes, moisture, and what seems to be the idea of vast expanse, which makes sense given that's a fairly accurate description of the sky. It's wet and big. Tied to this idea of birth and sexual union, A.W. Reed says that darkness is the female element, whereas light is the male, and as such, night is intrinsically related to women and pregnancy. When a woman is pregnant, it's a deep connection to papa and her gestation in the long nights before light entered the world. A South Island version that we see is that papa wasn't married to Rangi, at least not initially. Some say that she married Tangaroa, god of the ocean, first, and even gave birth to his child. Tangaroa then took the placenta to some distant place, and when he returned, his wife had essentially shacked up with Rangi and had already given birth to his children. As you might expect, Tangaroa was none too happy, and fought Rangi on a beach, resulting in the latter being pierced in the thighs by barbed spears, meaning the children Papa gave birth to after that were weak and sickly. Other versions say Tangaroa was Rangi's uncle, or perhaps his brother, or peer. His relationship with the primordial lovers changes a bit in different stories, but most tales you will hear nowadays say that he is their child. In the South Island version, Tane Mahuta and the other children come to help Rangi after he is wounded on the beach. They try to pick up their father, but were unable, until Tane managed to do it, and placed him among the clouds, resting him on the sharp peaks of the mountains. This is probably an alternate version of the separation story that we are familiar with. Papa wasn't the only one changing her partners, though. Some say that Rangi had multiple wives and children to them. Sometimes their main godly children are even attributed to these other wives, or are said to be his grandkids instead. As mentioned, Rangi and Papa are often seen as being the offspring of the previous steps of Tepor, or perhaps some other gods within that period. Within this raises an interesting question. Were these gods that spawned our world in some way indicative of a previous world that no longer exists? There isn't any info on whether this idea was expanded on in any way, but it is an interesting concept. From there, the story mostly progresses as you've heard before. The six main children of Rangi and Papa feel squashed between the two lovers and want to do something about it. To Matoinga, god of war, proposes just killing them, which everyone says is a terrible idea. Tane Mahuta, god of the forests, offers the alternate solution of pushing them apart, which Tafiri Matia, the god of storms, doesn't like, but he gets outvoted. Everyone tries to push their parents apart, but was unsuccessful until Tane went last and managed to do it, propping Rangi up on four poles. These poles can be the four winds or the rays of the sun, depending on who you ask. Other stories say that Rangi was rolled over onto ropes while he was asleep and placed on a pole called Putu Tirangi, which had ten joints. 
each joint becoming one of the ten heavens. I know what you're thinking, hold on to that, we'll talk about that in another episode. In all these stories, Tane is helped by his brother Paia, who carries Rangi on his back to the poles and acts as Tonga by reciting Karakia. Once Rangi is up, light entered the world, possibly for the first time. Tane also receives the name Tane Firinaki, Tane the Buttress, for this deed. Once separated, Rangi and Papa grieve for each other, which is seen as the rain and mists respectively. Given he was against the whole thing, Tafiri Matea went up to Rangi's embrace and essentially plotted revenge with his father. Here is probably a good opportunity to introduce what I'm calling the Big Six. Or perhaps it's better to say reintroduce, because we have seen them a lot throughout the podcast. These are the six main atua of the Māori pantheon, if you exclude Rangi and Papa. You may see some sources refer to them as departmental gods, on account of the fact that they have one large department that they take care of or control. These guys, because they are all men, aren't just the Olympians or Aesir of their day. This is more like the Zeus, Hades and Poseidon. There are other gods besides these guys, but this is the absolute cream of the crop. There are also two other gods that are usually ascribed to being Rangi and Papa's children, but I'll talk about them at the end of this episode because they're kind of related to these guys, but sit outside this big six kind of thing. You'll see why when we talk about them. So, here are the big six in ascending order of importance. Tafiri Matea sits at the bottom of the ladder because, as we'll see, he gets into a war with some of his brothers and continually tries to fight them and their offspring to this day. One of those offspring being us humans. As he is the Atua of winds and storms, you can probably see why he ranks fairly low on the list. And although he isn't the only wind or rain god in the pantheon, he is the most powerful slash most important due to his association with Rangi and Papa. Additionally, he is the source of all wind and possibly air in the world, and he fathered many of the forces of nature, like wind, rain, snow, ice, frost, hail, mist, clouds, and so on. As you might have gathered in the story about the separation, Tafiri Matea didn't just oppose it, he actually aligned himself with Rangi, so a lot of the subsequent conflict that occurred was actually done with Rangi's help and blessing. Next up in the hierarchy was Homea Tikitiki, or Homea Tikitiki, or just Homea. He is the Atua of uncultivated food, so the food foraged in the bush, like Aruhe or Karaka. However, his department is kinda interesting since Tane Mahuta, who is the Atua of the forests, would seem to have laid claim to everything within the bush, especially since Tane is seen more often as a god of fertility than Homer is, even though the latter is much more obviously tied to life-sustaining food than the former. So although you see Homer being called the god of uncultivated food, the reality is he is more like the Atua of just Aruhe, and in fact is sometimes seen as a personification of that specific plant. 
It seems odd then that a single plant would require an entire departmental god, especially when Homer has a much wider domain with other cultures in the Pacific. But given the importance of Aruhe to the survival of Māori when they arrived in Aotearoa, maybe it isn't that surprising that they held it in high regard. If you want to hear more about Aruhe, you can listen to episode 52. It should also be noted that those of the Takatimu Waka don't consider Homia as one of Rangi and Papa's children. Above Homia was a fairly similar and yet very different atua, Rongomareroa, or as you may have heard me call him in the past, Rongomatane, or just Rongo. Rongo is the atua of cultivated food, so taro, yams, hue, and most importantly, kumara, as well as the general idea of fertility around those plants. However, Rongo is a bit weird in that his department is actually very wide, as are the names he goes by, so sometimes it can be difficult to trace his equivalents throughout the Pacific. He is sometimes associated with the moon, though this may be a European mistake. But in general, he is also known as the god of peace and manakitanga, hospitality, which kind of makes sense. You don't go planting or harvesting feasts in wartime, it's usually easier to do those things when you aren't worried about a patu to the face. What makes Rongo kind of weird though is that, depending on who you ask, he has a bit of a unique relationship with Tumatoinga, where sometimes they're allied against other gods, and other times they are fighting each other, usually with Tu killing Rongo before cooking and eating him, Rongo himself being symbolic of a kumara. We'll talk about this a bit more in the next episode. You can hear more about Rongo's domain in episodes 47 to 50. Tumatoinga is the third most important deity, which is interesting for a couple of different reasons. The first is that he is quite high up on this list as he is the creator of men, again slightly depending on who you ask, so the fact that he would be fairly important makes sense. The other is that, contrary to some popular belief, he is not at the top of the list, being that he is the Atua of war showing that this was not the most important concept to Māori. They actually ranked the two most life-giving environments higher than him. In fact, what you find is that he doesn't actually appear in a lot of stories, which is a good indication that Māori society wasn't totally warlike, especially since he is sometimes regarded as being part of the reason that evil is in the world. So, it's unlikely that a culture would want to align themselves too heavily with a deity like that. Interestingly, when the wind blows is sometimes taken to be a sign of his presence, which may be related to the story of him standing strong against Tafiri Matea's winds. It is also possible that Tu has a connection to the setting sun related to his connection with death. In the number two slot is Tangaroa, Atua of the Oceans. His place on the ladder also makes sense, given how a significant part of life the ocean played when Māori lived in East Polynesia. It was important for food, recreation, and 
Not to mention it was how Māori got to Aotearoa in the first place. As such, Tangaroa's importance is solidified in his close relationship to Rangi and Papa, as husband, brother, peer, and finally, son. He was also said to be the ruler of land and sea before Tane took the former off him. His slight demotion in favour of Tane may reflect the lower importance of voyaging in Māori society compared to that of when they were in the tropics. The Pacific Ocean was everywhere, and very important when Māori were living in Hawaii. Again, it was used for travel, recreation and food. Once in Aotearoa, the land they were on was much bigger, and as such, the sea played a lesser, but still important, role in their life. In the rest of the Pacific though, Tangaroa is an extremely important god, sometimes being considered the creator of the world, and is possibly one of the oldest gods Māori have. On top of all this, he has an interesting relationship in that he doesn't seem to fully command dominion over the sea. Other gods, like Kiwa and Hinemoana, share that with him. That of course leaves one more god for the top rung, Tane Mahuta, the Atua of the forests, and in fact many other things. He is probably the most important god in the pantheon, though of course all of these rankings are somewhat subject to interpretation. Although his most famous domain is that of trees, birds and the forests in general, he is also sometimes representative of light, such as the light that entered the world when he pushed his parents apart. He may have also been related to, or used to personify the sun as well, but scholars like Best and Hiroa don't think that idea has much evidence, probably since Tamanui Tara was his own thing. Tane is also seen as the god of health and medicine, as there are stories around him having a health-giving lake that the moon dips into each day to replenish herself. This likely stems from the idea that Māori got many of their medicines from the forest. He is also associated with fertility, both of the bush and sometimes of humans, since in some stories he is the creator of the first woman, and father of the first man, giving him the name Tāne Matua, Tāne the father. In fact, all of the big six have a variety of names depending on what context they are being invoked. Other names for Tāne include Tāne Nuia Rangi, the great Tāne son of Rangi, Tāne Te Wairoa, when talking about him in the context of life and prosperity. Tāne Te Wānanga, when talking about his role as a bringer of knowledge. And Tāne Tokorangi, referring to him being the one to raise the sky. As I mentioned at the start of this list, there are a couple of atua that I have failed to mention, and that is because although they are children of Rangi and Papa, they're not exactly favoured by humans. Tafiri Matea gets a bit of a pass because he is still kind of important for like the air and wind and isn't exactly harmful to humans outright since he was beaten by their progenitor, Tumatoinga. These two unnamed deities are still quite important though, so let's finish up by talking about them. Fedor isn't exactly an atua of anything in particular. 
evil, darkness, disease would probably be the closest things to a proper department. Though it's important to distinguish that he represents natural evil rather than moral evil done by humans. He is the origin of Mayaki, demons who cause disease, and Fedor himself is sometimes called Fedor Tetipua, Fedor the demon, or goblin, depending on how you translate it. However, he didn't start out like that, as he was a valued member among his brothers, until he opposed the separation of his parents. Interestingly, this doesn't seem to be due to any sort of altruism or concern for his parents, which was the root of Tavari Matia's objection. Fedor's motivation seems to be due to jealousy for Tane, and he likely would have been for the separation if either himself or one of his other brothers, like Tu or Tangaroa, had proposed it themselves, rather than it being Tane, who was the youngest. This feud only got worse when Tane was chosen for some very important tasks, and it seems Fedor made some bad choices in life, such as abducting the wife of another god, who was also his daughter. Some versions say Fedor allied himself with Ruamoko and his wife Hinenui Tepo, the Atua of earthquakes and death, respectively. However, other versions say that the goddess of death was against Fedor, so the relationship there is a bit unclear. Though she does have a reason to not like Tane, and therefore have common cause with Fedor. In general, he's seen as an almost tragic figure, having been cast into the underworld due to his jealousy, and as such is sometimes referred to as a fallen angel type character. Lizards are often seen as symbols of Fedor, or representatives of him, and as such are seen as warning signs or signals of death. The other deity is one I just mentioned, Ruamoko. Atua of earthquakes and volcanoes. Ruomoko's name comes from the root word ru, which means shake, and is the word for earthquakes, so all of his different names come from that. He is the actual true youngest of the gods. He was still in Papa's womb, or on her breast, depending on the version, when the parents were separated. If the story refers to being on Papa's breast, it is usually followed with Papa being turned over by her sons so that she doesn't have to look at her husband, resulting in Ru being underneath her. This turning over of Papa was mostly because the Big Six thought that there was too much rain and mist, a result of the two parents crying over their loss. Hence why they thought if the sky and earth couldn't see each other, then it would lessen. Whether he's at the breast or in the womb, he lives in Rarohinga, the underworld, and his brothers felt kinda stink that he has to live in darkness all the time. So they acquired fire for him, which he now uses against them in the form of volcanoes. He is often seen as being in perpetual infancy, which is interesting given he is said to have married Hinenui Tepo. He is also connected to the seasons, which change due to his turning over. Some stories from Tuhoi say that Rangi cast Ru into Rarohinga and that he pulls on the strings that control the land, i.e. volcanoes. Kaitahu and Natiawa also believe that he is the origin of thunder. Next time, 
we will talk about some of the deeds that Tane Mahuta did to earn his many other names, and that which solidified himself as worthy of receiving the utmost respect from Māori, such as adorning his parents with clothes and bringing knowledge from the highest authority in the land, or rather, in heaven. If you want to send me feedback, ask a question, suggest a topic, or just have a chinwag, you can find my email and social media on historyaotearoa.com. Aotearoa spelt A-O-T-E-A-R-O-A. You can find helpful resources there, like transcripts, sources, and translations for some of the te reo Māori we have used. You can help support Hans through Patreon, buying merch, or giving us a review. It means a lot and helps spread the story of Aotearoa New Zealand. As always, Hari tu atu, hoki tu mai. See you next time.